Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Happy New Year and welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, and I'm also here in Belgium. So for this, our first podcast episode of 2021, we are extremely pleased to welcome Ambassador Gerard Oreau. The ambassador spent over three decades representing France globally, and his last diplomatic role was as ambassador to the United States, a position he held from 2014 to 2019, particularly exciting time. And today, in our new set of exciting times, he is a senior advisor at the Albright Stonebridge Group, a trustee of the International Crisis Group, thank you, and a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, really glad you were able to join us. Bonjour et bonne année. Happy New Year. (laughs) But It was 2014 to 2019 is a period with a great deal of U.S. history, as well as pretty substantial amount of history for many of the rest of us. Were you surprised kind of over the course of those five years? Were you surprised by what happened in the United States? Actually, yes, of course, I was surprised, but I was an outsider in Washington, D.C., in the sense I was not an American, which means that I didn't share the passions of my American friends. And for me, I could have a sort of clinical analysis of what was happening in Washington, because my first reaction when being told that Donald Trump was elected was to think immediately that after Brexit, we had Donald Trump and that we were facing a global crisis of the Western democracies. So for me, the American narrative has always been part of a wider crisis. And I've always tried to extricate myself from the American politics to go to the Western politics, to look at these 35%, 40% of our citizens who were basically rebelling against the system. So I was trying to forget Donald Trump himself, which was quite difficult, to be <laughs> frank, and to look at the wider picture. What was happening in the American public opinion, American society, what was happening in the British society, and also in the French society when we had uh, riots, you know, with the yellow vest. For me, it was exactly the same problem. And what did that mean for foreign policy? These changes, this rise of populism in the US as elsewhere? Actually, it was interesting, worrying, whatever you want to say, that everywhere we had the same claim coming from our citizens, first against free trade, against globalization. And I do think that something as dramatic has occurred in our societies. And even if Joe Biden has been elected, in the U.S., we can't go back to free trade as usual. The issue of trade has changed, and it will be addressed in a very different way everywhere. Second element is, and it has been reinforced by the coronavirus, is also the pressure to bring back borders. What does it mean? You know, in a sense, when you look at the virus, you could say that it's confirming a lot of what the populists have been saying, criticizing the elite, saying the elites have been ineffective to protect us. 
And to be frank, I'm not convinced that the elites have been very effective to protect us from the violence. To say, actually, the borders are important and we are closing our borders to protect us from the virus. To say, you know, free trade is also giving to foreign countries an influence on our own freedom. And let's remember in the beginning when the masks were made in China and so on. So we have all, I think, a pressure which has been increased by the virus for bringing back the borders. And that's something we won't be able to ignore. But what does it mean in the sense how our liberal democracies, our open societies are going to respond to this pressure without forgetting their values? Do you sometimes feel that there's something even broader than that? You talked about uh, Brexit and the election of President Trump being turning points. In your position as an ambassador of France in Washington, how did you see the French people responding to the kind of dynamics that had been set free in the United States and Britain by these two events? You know, I was referring to what we call the yellow vest, the gilet jaune, the riots that we had in 2018, which were exactly the same people in a sense, people coming from the rural areas or from the small cities which considered they have been victims of globalization because factories were closed and everything was more or less moving to the big cities. So it has expanded well beyond the UK and the US, you know, in Italy, in France, and also in Germany. So it's a very different atmospheric that our democracies now are living in and we have to define their foreign policy. But going back to foreign policy, since it's the topic of our conversation more than our domestic policy, there is something that I want to insist in the beginning of our conversation is the continuity between Obama and Trump. I think it's an element which usually my liberal friends are screaming when I say that, but Obama had, and Trump in a very different way, of course, had understood the fatigue of the American public opinion towards international engagement. It's not by chance that both of them had given a nickname to the Washington bubble. You know, really one said it's the blob, the other one was saying it's the swamp. All our good friends, the experts working in the think tanks and uh, newsmen and women who still think in terms of a very active U.S. on the foreign scene. And actually, a lot of Americans are not convinced that it's the national interest of the United States. And we saw it with Obama, who didn't intervene in Ukraine, who didn't intervene in Syria, or we did in Syria the minimum under the maximum pressure coming from the Arab states on the European allies. And I think after that, we saw it in a much more, I should say, much less sophisticated way by Donald Trump. The U.S., are, I'm not saying are withdrawing from the international scene, but are limiting their involvement on the international scene. That's something which went through the mandates of Obama and of Trump. So that raises the question of Joe Biden, because if there's anybody who is emblematic of the Washington establishment and of Washington foreign policy establishment that believes in the United States as a force for good in the world, it's surely Joe Biden. So do you see the incoming Biden administration as a break with uh, what both Barack Obama and Donald Trump tried to do, or will they be forced into continuity? 
I think you are asking a very good question because, and of course, it would remain during our conversation a big question mark. You're perfectly right. And the people who are going to work with him, Tony Blinken or Jack Sullivan, are coming from the Obama administration. And Tony was, Tony Blinken was, you know, has been around for 30 years in the foreign policy establishment at a time where the Americans were quite active on the international scene. What I hear from these guys that I know very well, of course, is that they understand the world has changed and they understand that they have to define a new foreign policy to the U.S. But what does it mean? I think it's a big question mark. I don't think they will bring back the GIs. <laughs> they are not going to send the GIs to Kiev or to Damascus. They are going to be, I should say, more active than Trump because Trump was not only withdrawing the U.S. from the international scene, it was vanishing. The U.S. had vanished in diplomatic terms on most of the conflict, on most of the issues, and Trump didn't care about allies, which will be, of course, quite different. There was a tweet by Jack Sullivan who was interesting because it was answering to a tweet saying that the EU and China were going to engage into negotiating an agreement on investment. And Jake was saying, you know, well, he sent us a very interesting tweet saying that the Biden-Harris administration would be interested to have a talk with the European Union. And of course, never under the Trump administration, we would have had this reaction. So it would be an administration, obviously, diplomatically more engaged. But the question mark was, and we have to compare it in a sense to Obama administration. What you can regret with the Obama administration was that there was on one side withdrawing the U.S. from the management of foreign affairs or for military intervention. But there was not, I should say, trying to build a new world order. What was the new world order that the U.S. actually were wanted to build or to contribute to? It was more a sort of negative movement than the positive movement. So now the time has come that the U.S. will, in a sense, tell us what it will be. We are living in a world of world politics, obviously, with the question mark, the big question mark, the most important world relationship, which is relationship with China. What does it mean? What is the role of the Europeans in this order? So there is to go back to your question. The answer of your question is a question mark. We are at a, a tournant. We are really, it's a new world, which is appealing. These people are quite smart and they know it's a new world. So what are they going to do? I don't have the answer, of course. But Ambassador, talking about change, though, I mean, one thing that has become clear is that a new president can reverse everything that the previous president stood for. And this could happen again in four years' time. I mean, as the representative of a major European country, I mean, do you think that outside powers are going to trust the United States in the same way they used to? I think that was the joke by Reagan. You know, really, the trust is good, but verify is better. In the world, we have to work with what we have. You know, the U.S. with Biden is coming. Let's take what he's offering. We don't have the choice. Biden is coming back to the Paris Agreement. Let's rejoice and let's see what we can do in three or four years. On the nuclear deal with Iran, it's more or less the same. European countries, in a sense, don't have the choice but to work with the Americans. No, the real question mark will be on the side of Iran. If I were Iranian, actually, I would wonder whether I'm going to make concessions to an administration to be hit by new sanctions in a four-year time. So I think that's a real question mark in a country where you have radicals like Iran, and there will be a debate and a legitimate debate. 
Iran has been, let's say, the victim of a war, of an economic war, without any precedent. The strength, the brutality of the sanctions imposed by the U.S. has absolutely no precedent in the history, and it has hurt severely the Iranian economy. So I think on the Iranian side, that could be a really legitimate question, and maybe in other issues. But as for European countries, they don't have a choice but to work with the Americans at the moment when the Americans want to work with them. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking to Ambassador Gerard Aro. Ambassador, this raises a question for me, which is what, if anything, can Europe, can European countries individually or together do to limit America's capacity to change its policy radically every four years? Are there any tools to lock an ally in a little bit better? You know, again, I don't have the, the answer because the U.S. has always, always, under Democratic president or Republican presidents, has always done whatever they want. Everybody is trying to describe America as a paradise of multilateralism. Before Donald Trump, it has never been a multilateralist country. Never. You know, well, it's under Clinton that he didn't sign the International Criminal Court he didn't sign the treaty banning nuclear testing. He didn't sign the convention on personal landmines. And it's a democratic secretary of state who has said that the U.S. is an exceptional country, so it's not linked or tied by the same rules than the rest of the world. So on the European side, we are a bit philosophical about the United States. When the United States say, oh, we want to work with you, it means we want you work under our leadership. That's really the United States have stepped in the world seen in 1945 as producing 40% of the world GDP as the leader, and it has always considered itself as the leader. Of course, it was less whimsical under democratic presidents, but it has always been a bit unpredictable, and we always felt obliged to adjust to it. But aren't there limits to this power? I mean, you talked about the US limiting itself a bit, but uh, what we've been observing at Crisis Group is so many of these mid-range countries turning to military tools and getting away with it and moving into the vacuum. Perhaps we could even include some European countries like France and really showing even under Obama certain uh, President Sarkozy's actions in Libya way out in front of what uh, the United States was ready to do. Are we moving into a new era where mid-sized powers are going to have much more freedom than they used to? I think it's certainly, in a sense, a possibility and I should say a risk. If you see Turkey sending mercenaries in Libya, it's totally amazing. I don't think that uh, if the United States had fulfilled its normal role on the world scene, that Turkey would have dared to do that. So you're right. There was a time where a French president was advocating a multipolar world. Actually, multipolar world means not a world under a multilateral umbrella, but a jungle. So people have been complaining that the U.S. were a bit an overbearing leader, the way I was doing it a few minutes ago. But actually, when the leader is not there, we are really back to the jungle with middle-range powers like Turkey feel entitled or feel allowed to act in a military sense. 
yes, we are entering into a more dangerous world. So we need the U.S., I should say, in diplomatic terms. We need American diplomacy. We are not asking for, again, the GIs, but we need American diplomacy. You know, really, for instance, to work with Turkey. We have a lot of issues with Turkey, with Greece, Cyprus, of course, but now Armenia, Syria, Iraq, and the U.S. is nowhere to be seen. That's a good example where we need the Americans stepping in, American diplomacy to be back. Can France do any of it? I mean, for a while there, it seemed as though there was an interest in Paris in picking up at least some of that slack. Frankly, the French are vain, but they are smart. So we perfectly do know really what we can do and what we can't. And looking at what happened in the Eastern Mediterranean during the summer, basically what we did was to reinforce, to support Greece and Cyprus, because there was obviously an unbalance of power in favor of Turkey. And when you want to negotiate, the first thing you have to do is to establish a balance of power. So we did it. But in a sense, uh, once you have done it, we have to move forward, to move further and to open a negotiation. And France couldn't do it. Germany tried, apparently, but uh, apparently Germany neither couldn't do it. So maybe we need somebody more convincing, and it could be, let's hope it, the US. What about the European Union? It was set up to be that kind of presence on the stage, wasn't it? There is a big question mark about the geopolitical significance of the European Union. This crisis was a very good example of the limitations of what the European Union can do for some obvious reasons. You know, in Stockholm, frankly, people don't care so much about what is happening in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. They are, they are concerned about the Baltic Sea. And for them, Turkey is a market. And they don't know why they should actually threaten their access to the Turkish market because of Greece or Cyprus or because of the French. On the opposite side... To be frank, in Portugal or in, in Madrid, Belarus looks a bit far away. That's, I think, it's a real limitation of the geopolitical significance of the European Union. I'm convinced personally that the European Union has a geopolitical significance, not on these issues, but all, and in a sense, I would want to come to these issues because I think they are the real, real issues of the future of all the issues which are, I should say, transnational, not the traditional geopolitical issues. You know, the trade, I was talking about what is the future of trade? It's a real question because of China, of course. What does it mean? But also because of our citizens, because of environment, trade and environment, fighting climate change, the governance of the Internet, all the issues which are linked to the technological transition, you know, really the ethics of artificial intelligence. So you have a lot, a lot of new issues. I think the European Union is the good interlocutor, and I think we should work with the United States. But again, that's not the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. I think that for some time, it will be the national diplomacies or the national military forces which will be engaged into solving them. Do you think that the European Union has been gravely weakened by the loss of Britain, or will it make no difference? Of course it is. You know, really, Britain was bringing us all the qualities of these exasperating people. Really, they are getting on our nerves, but we love them. They have a lot of qualities, they have a lot of potentialities, they have real armed forces, good diplomacy, and so on, and so on, and soft power that we are losing. The worst aspect is that, personally, I'm betting on years of squabbling between us and the British. 
because Brexit will be painful, painful to both sides, but more painful to the British side for obvious reasons, and which will feed actually a wave of nationalism. It will be a bit toxic. We are going to have toxic atmospherics through the channel, and there will be also a period of instability. The Britain will try to be global, which doesn't mean anything. So it's really bad. Some people say, oh, it gives to the people who want to destroy the European Union, it will give a good test case of what does it mean. But I think it's very short, of short-sighted to say that. What about Russia? Is uh, Europe waiting for U.S. leadership on Russia, or is U.S. leadership going to lead Europe astray on Russia if Europe doesn't get a little bit louder and more effective? You know, when President Macron was elected, actually, I told him that we should talk to the Russians. Basically, Russia is there and is going to stay. Diplomacy is to talk to everybody and especially to talk to the countries which are raising problems. He has met and by doing it, he has raised a lot, a lot of opposition, of protest in Eastern Europe. He has met several times Putin. But the reality is now that it has led to nothing. And, you know, it takes two to tango. And so far... Putin has not shown that he wants to tango. It was possible to reach a compromise on some issues like Ukraine, for instance. France and Germany were ready to concede in a way or in another that Ukraine was not going to join NATO or not going to join the European Union. You know, it was something which could be managed. Do you think Russia knew that, that France and Germany would... Yeah, but nothing has changed. You know, really, Russia has not shown in eastern Ukraine any restraint has not really made more easier a negotiation with Ukraine. Ukraine on its side, neither, by the way. And you have had all these petty provocations, not only the assassinations, which frankly were already something really that you can consider as stupid, by, by the way, in political terms, but also the provocation in the Baltic airspace, in the Swedish Sea, or in the North Sea. So you have had all this Russian activity and no clear sign that the Russians wanted to reach an agreement. The question that you can raise with Turkey, with Russia, with China, is whether these countries are accepting the world order as it is and are ready to reach compromise because, you know, they have legitimate interests, or if they want to, in a sense, to undermine the world order, whether they are revolutionary powers or revisionist powers, whether they want really to change dramatically the world order. If it's the case, it's very difficult to reach an agreement with them. We have to contain them. So far, unfortunately, the message sent by Russia has been Russia is not really looking for a compromise which will be compatible with the current world order. You have the impression that they really want actually to contest the borders which were born from 1991. The problem is on the U.S. side that Russia has become largely a domestic political issue. Really, as you know, eating Russia was a way of eating Trump. And there has been a sort of bidding, overbidding you know, really in Washington to be, oh, I would be more anti-Russian than you. And that, I think it's not positive. We need the U.S. talking to Russia. There is another issue, which is sanctions. Foreign policy in the U.S. now has become more and more really summarized by sanctions, 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 layers of sanctions against every country. I'm not sure that that's the good way of managing the diplomacy. 
I must have painted a really gloomy picture of the world, a geopolitical jungle, a toxic Brexit, damaged EU, rising nationalism, revisionism everywhere. We're going into a new... Happy New Year. <laughs> we're go- I was about to say, we're going into a new year. Have you no hope for the future? No, I think, you know, what is important, power politics are back, but what we need to do is to show to all the countries that there are common issues. Climate change is a very good example, and with Joe Biden, it could be a sort of reunification of the world around this issue. It's thanks to President Obama, largely, and the French diplomacy, but that we reached in 2015, the Paris Agreement, that all the stakeholders, including China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, actually have signed, have accepted this agreement. So I think the most productive way will be to take these sort of issues and, in a sense, to convince all countries that actually there is a common interest, that there is a one humankind, one planet, and that we should work together. You know, really, that everybody look at the governance of Internet. Of course, we are complaining, and right now, especially complaining right now, that there are attacks, you know, attacks, in this case, against U.S. administrations, and everybody is screaming, you know, against the Russians. But the fact is, to be frank, that when I was working as Undersecretary for Political Affairs in Paris, I was talking to the Russians and the Russians were telling me that they were themselves victims of hundreds of attacks. And they were saying that some of them were obviously coming from the U.S. I don't know if it's U.S. official or U.S. hackers somewhere in Utah. The 400-pound person at the basement, yes? Exactly. So anyway, it means that we have all of, and I'm sure that the Chinese will say the same. Is it possible simply to say, okay, how can we manage these problems? And also the artificial intelligence, what does it mean? Because, you know, we are worried that you have an attack against our critical infrastructures. I'm sure the Russians and the Chinese have the same concern, and they can suspect that the Americans are able to do it. So can we work on that? You're trying to find these common issues while accepting the reality of power politics. So that is a slightly more positive note on which to end, which sadly we have to do because we are out of time, which really amazing how quickly this conversation has gone by. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for joining us. It really has been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, we hope that this got you off to as good a new year as it has us. You should be reading Ambassador Rowe. He writes in the weekly Le Point. And um, you can also hear him on France Inter. And he is on Twitter at Gerard For more of our work at uh, International Crisis Group on many of the conflicts and crises France is or could be involved in, do check out our website uh, www.crisisgroup.org. If you don't already, follow Crisis Group and Hugh and me on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olia Olaker. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where we are at Crisis Group. And please do feel free to tweet about us and rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are on many, many platforms and we'd love to hear from you. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check it out for some of the others. And we're produced by Boo Media, so big thanks to them. And also to Rebecca Zerihun Asifa, very capable producer who makes sure that we're all here in time every time. And talking about the same thing. Our biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're glad glad to have another year with you and looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.